Jesus spoke about money more than heaven, hell, or prayer. In this series, we'll take a look at several of the things he said about money and how they apply to our life today. Well, we are in a series today uh, called Jesus Said, and today is part two of that. We did an installment last year, and we're doing another one, and we will probably do many more in the future because, after all, Jesus had quite a few things to say. And so what we're doing with this series is, is putting ourselves in the crowd. All too often we read the Bible and it's history and, and we'll see something and think, man, I'm glad I wasn't there. And, and that we can't do that though. When, when Jesus was talking, we need to imagine that when he made one of those really hard statements and he's preaching and he's looking around the crowd like I do sometimes because you know he didn't have lights that blinded them. He could actually see every one of you. And, and he would say something difficult. Imagine him making eye contact with you at that moment. And then you have to wrestle with, what am I going to do with what he just said? And that's the way we need to read the Bible, especially these stories of Jesus talking to crowds. And this installment, the one that we're doing this year, what we're doing is looking at four statements that I think are even more culturally relevant to us today and things that maybe we struggle with more. We began last week, part one, with what Jesus said about being anxious, worry, and anxiety. And the truth is that is a huge topic in our world today. The stats are overwhelming. I shared some of those in that message. I won't repeat them right now. But for me, the interesting thing that says we really need to think about what Jesus said is the fact that the statistics on struggling with being anxious and anxiety is the same for people who are Jesus followers in the church as it is for the rest of the world. We definitely should have a different response. So if you missed that, I wanna encourage you to go check it out. It's on our app or on our website. Uh, I was in an airport recently, it has nothing to do with the anxiety I was just talking about. I, I love flying, it's not a problem, um, changing topics. But I was in an airport recently, it was an international airport, uh, one that was not one of my preferred places to be, a little crowded, a little uh, disorganized. And the announcement would come on every so often that says, if you see something, something unusual, a strange bag, or maybe even a strange person, if you see something, say something. And, and I just wanna tell you, if you're in a, international airport and you want to make it home, if you see something, say something. That's like a really good idea. That's just what you should do. The question though is, in day-to-day life, if you see something, what happens if you say something? Like if you're at work and you've got some coworkers that are making really inappropriate jokes, what happens if you say something? You may not get the response you were hoping for. You may find yourself eating lunch alone. What happens at school when a bully is picking on another student? What happens if you say something? You may now be the one that the bully starts picking on, right? What happens if you say something on social media that's not the most popular opinion today? (laughs) I bet every one of us has a story for that one, don't we? The truth is I think we all imagine that movie scene where you stand up against the crowd and against all the odds and and you do defend that student or you do correct everybody and, and suddenly the whole crowd cheers for you and it's amazing, except we just discovered we don't live in Hollywood. And if you've ever tried that, you probably weren't the hero. You became the new target, right? So today we're gonna look at what Jesus said to do when standing up most likely just gets you knocked back down. You guys ready for this one? It's gonna be a little, uh, little, little close to home, if I could just say it that way. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 12. As always, it will be on the screen right here. 
It says uh, in, in verse four, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Today we're looking at Jesus' statement about don't fear them, but do fear God. And the context for this story is really so, so special. If, if you don't know this, you're missing something. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with you. There were actually two layers going on at the same time. Two things were happening. One, and the most obvious to everyone around him at the time, is that there was a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. If you're new to church or the Bible, the Pharisees were the most powerful religious leaders of the time. And because the people of Israel were not just a, a country, but they were a religious country, their God uh, was also the leader of their nation, so to speak. And their, their laws were simply their, their scripture. And so then religious leaders, they didn't just rule what you did when you came to church or preach at you. They actually ruled how culture took place. So if you weren't a very good churchgoer, so to speak, then they would go and tell people not to shop at your business. No, no, don't buy eggs from them. Don't, don't buy their, their wool from their sheep. And so they had an incredible amount of control and influence. And it had only built up over the years and become more and more corrupt. And Jesus shows up and he starts talking about freedom and what God really wanted from people and how that was quite different from what the Pharisees were teaching sometimes. And so throughout Jesus' ministry, it really butted heads quite a bit with these Pharisees. And he had actually just finished an encounter with them. At this point in the story, he had just gotten to where they were going back and forth and saying something. And so he finally just did this teaching called woe to the Pharisees. So he literally just turned to them at some point because they kept saying things just that, woe to you Pharisees. And, many, and he just kind of told them off. And after that, when he did it again, woe to you Pharisees. And he did that several times in a row and he completely publicly humiliated them. And so if we can back up just a few sentences, this is what had just happened. After he did this, woe to you Pharisees, he turned and he went away. It says, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard. They already were. And they were trying to provoke him to speak about many things because they were lying in wait for him, trying to catch him in something he might say. And so as he then turns to his disciples and says, I tell you, my friends, do not worry about those who can kill the body. They were like, oh, I get it, Jesus. Like, don't worry about these people who have the, the opinion and the influence and everything because, you know, every time they try to catch you in something, you have something smarter to say. Every time they try to embarrass you, you end up embarrassing them. And ultimately, even though, you know, sometimes they, they have tried to make you not liked and make everybody fear uh, being around you. And matter of fact, they're even trying to kill you. They never get away with it. So I get it. Don't be afraid of them and what they're trying to do. But there was a second thing happening. As Jesus was saying this, he was on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. He knew that within a very short amount of time, his disciples would connect the dots. As he would go into Jerusalem and these very same Pharisees would get a crowd together to start cheering, no, 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 let that guy go, but kill Jesus. And he would be crucified, nailed to a cross and laid in a tomb. And at that moment, his disciples would go, oh, don't just fear what they would try to do, but don't fear that they might actually succeed. 
Don't fear those that can kill the body and what they'll do to you. Can we be honest about this topic in us today? Because right now, some of you are thinking, I thought this man was gonna talk about the things that were most culturally relevant to us. This couldn't be further from our context. We're, we're not under threat to come into a church, right? I mean, come on, that's, that's the truth, right? Matter of fact, this passage is usually preached and it has been preached in past decades and centuries to generations when it was like, hey, if you go out as a missionary, if you travel around the world and you stand up for Jesus, you may lose your life. This was a, a strong and encouraging message 150 years ago as someone may get on a ship bound for a, a tribal culture or a hostile culture and knowing that they may never be seen by their family and friends again. Pastors would preach this saying, be bold for the gospel, take the gospel to the ends of the earth even if it costs you your life. I can imagine, as I actually not imagine, I know because I have friends who work in Muslim context and they, they use this passage as a Muslim becomes a believer in Jesus. And they say, look, you know, this is gonna cost you dearly. It could cost you everything and it may cost you your life. Your family will not be with you. Your friends will not be with you. The culture around you will not be with you. As it did happen, I could imagine it being used in Nazi Germany as pastors spoke up and said, hey, if we, if we stand up against this regime, it could cost us our lives. And I can imagine Dietrich Bonhoeffer teaching that as he did and as it did cost him his life. I can imagine this being used today as I'm hearing the stories because of people we know that are there. It's being used today in places like Ukraine and Central Africa and places where it is dangerous to represent Jesus or to stand up against a regime saying, if, if we stay and we do what is right, it could cost us our lives. But you and me here today, that's not our context, is it? None of us looked over our shoulder walking into this building today None of us are afraid if we're online that someone's gonna track down our ISP and we're not in trouble or in fear of our lives for worshiping Jesus here in this culture. And so all too often when you and I get to this story, we just turn the page. We think this is something Jesus said that does not apply to you and me. But the truth is, you're right, our physical lives are not in danger for our faith. But other parts of our lives are. Matter of fact, there are people that if you stand up for biblical values and faith, they are, there are some who will try to kill you. Not your physical body, but you in other ways. They will try to kill your reputation. They may try to kill your career. They will try to kill your influence. They will try to kill your opportunities. They will even try to kill your voice. And what we're talking about today, what we know with the label that it comes with is cancel culture. I told you we're gonna talk about things that are very relevant. I know this is touchy and some of you are like, oh, did that man just go there? Yes, I did. Because here's the reality. You and I live in a world today where although our physical lives are not in danger, we live in a world where there is a, an opinion that says the correct ideology and the correct culture values are not those of the Bible. They're not just saying we think one way and you think another. Actually, I grew up in that world. When I was a teenager, my generation faced the reality that suddenly people were very bold to say they didn't believe what the traditional America had believed 100 years previous. And because I grew up in the Bible Belt, we were a little slower. So it was, if, if you grew up maybe in Northwest or 
Northeast, you're probably a generation ahead of mine, but for me in the Bible Belt, it was my teenage generation that people began to actually be vocal that they just believed differently. Now, a couple of generations later, we live in a world that simply says you are wrong. It's not just we're different, we're wrong. That there are correct ideologies and they are not those of the Bible. So the truth is while Christians are being killed physically around the world today, that is not what you and I face. But we still need to look at what Jesus said and not discount it because we still have a very difficult choice. And that is how are we gonna represent God and what he stands for, what he believes to be right, what he declares to be right, when it comes with a cost. So with that context, let's go back to what Jesus said. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that they have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And before we go much further, I need to make sure you do not have an incorrect theology on this. Some people, and it's a very small crowd, but some people have actually taught heresy. There are people that believe Jesus is telling you, don't fear people, fear the devil. Fear the one who has authority to kill you and cast you into hell. That's heresy. If you've ever heard that, that is absolutely wrong. Can you imagine a world where God and Satan are equal? And where God is walking the streets going, I like you, I forgive you, come with me to heaven. And then it's Satan's turn. I don't like you, I kill you, come with me to hell. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the idea that God is not the one in charge of the length of your days like the Bible says? Can you imagine a one where, where they're just taking turns like schoolyard kids picking teams for kickball? I take you, no, I take you, I take, I mean, I tell you, I would hide under my bed and never come out but I'm able to walk the streets because I know that I have a sovereign God on the throne. He is not Satan's equal, he is over him. And I know, good theology, you need to know that Satan is not in charge of hell. No, 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 if you were to unfortunately find yourself there, Satan will not be your boss, he will be your roommate. Hell was created for him and for his disobedient angels. And although that's good theology, now we have a problem. Because Jesus just told us, don't fear people. Fear my Father in heaven. And that's a difficult statement, isn't it? I mean, y'all really would have much preferred if I'd have said, Jesus said, my Father loves you. That would have been a much easier sermon to preach, wouldn't it? Matter of fact, the truth is, Another reason this passage is not preached often is because we don't know how to handle the fear of God. We struggle with this concept. There are three concepts of fear and we need to figure out which one applies here. There's the, the first concept of actually being afraid of, that feeling that you have if you were to encounter a bear in the woods or equally if you had to go to the principal's office. This is the idea of being afraid of something or someone who is greater than you, controls the situation totally and leaves you completely at their mercy. And I don't know about you, I never wanna be at the mercy of a hungry bear. So we can imagine what it's like to be afraid of. I don't wanna be at the mercy of a principal if I've done something wrong. There's the other idea or another idea of fear and that is to want approval from. This is where peer pressure comes from, doing what a popular group of kids tell us to do 
or doing what your boss tells you to do only because we're afraid of their power over our lives, whether or not they invite us to sit with them at lunch or whether or not we get a promotion. It's a fear that we want their approval. And then there's a third concept of fear, and this is what gets used more when we're talking about God and when we're in church, and it's the idea of reverence. It's to give like a, a holy and proper respect that is due to God, especially because he has perfect holiness, power, God Almighty, majesty. And we could do this for the next 30 minutes, but I need to finish my message here. So which one of these is Jesus talking about when he says, don't fear people, but actually fear my father? I believe he means all three. And the context applies with all three. And so let me explain that. Let's, let's do them in, in a different order here. Let's start with reverence. The idea of fear God in reverence means to honor him because he's God and we're not. And we need to remember that. It means he's God almighty. He is the creator. He is holy. He is all knowing. He is perfect. And people are none of those things. Therefore, fearing God, giving him the proper reverence means to keep God in his place and to not put people in his place. So, when we have opinions from people that are different from this, when we begin to negotiate what this says in order to please those people, we are taking God out of his place and we are putting them in his place. We're putting reverence for them above reverence for God. And I believe one of the three meanings Jesus had here was do not revere people in their opinions above God and his ways. The second, the idea of being afraid of as though you're going to the principal's office. I was talking this week, I had a Zoom call with uh, two other pastors. We're working on a conference we're doing together later this year. And, and both of these pastors are much closer to retirement age. And I'm only pointing that out because they were talking about how they're looking back on life. And, and uh, man, one of them is they were talking about, I, I'm just having such a great life. God has just blessed me. It's just so amazing. One of them said, man, I, I know we're supposed to love God and everything, but I like him. Like, as I think about my life and how good he's been to me, I don't deserve this. And when I, when I just look at how he's, he talks to me and he blesses me, and I, I'm telling you, man, God is just amazing. Well, you know, as long as you don't get on his bad side or anything. He really said that. And of course, that's not the thing that a pastor is supposed to say from stage, right? You see, one other thing that our culture has lost today, I believe it's completely gone. I believe every generation lost a little but it is the belief in an authority that is both good and can correct you. I don't think we have that anymore. Matter of fact, if you can just imagine when we, well, you don't have to imagine, you're either a student now or you were a student once, right? And when a teacher gives you detention for being the class clown, no one ever walked up to the teacher. No one ever walked up to the teacher and said, I do realize I was disrupting class. I was rude and disrespectful to you. Thank you so much for correcting me. I can feel your love through the discipline and I will reflect upon that during my time in detention. You are a great teacher. I'm glad to have you in my life. Said no one ever. No, it's not possible to have a good authority who also corrects. What we do is we go kicking and screaming, throwing our books and we sit down and the teacher hates me. 
They just won't let me do anything. I, I mean, I was just saying something funny. I just made the class laugh. I was just making it enjoyable because class is so miserable anyway. They just hate me. I'll never succeed in their class. That's why I got a D on that test. You can't have a good parent who grounds you. No child has ever said, yes, father, you're correct. Well, except on Beaver the Cleaver, that doesn't count. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you for taking my phone away for the next two weeks. No. No, we go running down the hall, slamming our doors. I hate you. You don't love me. We don't believe that a boss can be kind and think well of you and yet also sit down to do an employee review to point out, hey, the thing you just did, can't do that again. Actually, then we, we avoid the boss and, and we don't believe that they could actually be a friend in any sort. We have lost the entire concept of a good authority that can also correct. This is how the devil turns children against parents, employees against bosses, church members against pastors, and ultimately humans against God. And the result is a world that is skeptical and challenging to most all authority. And the only authority we like is one that says, anything you want to do is good. I'm with you. So we struggle with the idea that Jesus could say, I have a loving father in heaven, but you should also fear him. Our brain short circuits because we almost no longer have a point of reference. But I want you to check this out. Jesus' very next sentence. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Wait a minute, Jesus, are you confused? Can you not like keep your sermon notes together, buddy? It was only one sentence ago. You said you better fear the one that can, that can kill you and that can cast you into hell. And then you turn right around and say, fear not. Yes, because according to Jesus, who knows the father better than anyone, who was a, a, an expression of the father upon the earth, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He would be the one who understands fear him who is holy and does deal with ungodliness. But fear not your value before him because of his love for you. Fear not your value before him because of his love for you, but also fear him who defends holiness and deals with ungodliness. You see, in Jesus' world, those two can go together. You can have a really good, loving God upon the throne who still says, hey, wait a minute, we need to talk about this. Our world, we don't have that, but we have got to get it back because that is the world Jesus lived in. And that is the world that you and I actually live in, we just don't realize it because that is the God on our throne, the one who loved you so much he sent his son to die for you, to watch his son hang on the cross in anguish because of his love for you. But the same one that'll say, come here, my child, we need to make a change. I believe that ultimately getting the right kind of fear in our life comes from the one that we struggle with the most. It's the one that we haven't talked about very much. And it was the third concept of fear, and that is to want approval from. The question that we're going to have to answer is, do we want approval for our lives from the people around us or from God? Now look, everybody knows the answer, right? Everybody here knows the answer. This could be a one question test and everybody here would make a 100 on the test because everybody knows in church the right answer is to go, oh, I know, I know, ask me, it's God, it's God, God. 
No one would dare stand up and say, oh, I think the right answer, Jimmy, is to fear all of my social media followers. No one would dare say that. So let me just challenge you. Don't answer it with your mouth. But do examine how you live after you leave the building today. Because that is the real question. You see, teenagers, how you respond to peer pressure is going to tell you the real answer. And adults, stop thinking peer pressure is a teenage problem. Because you care about your social media followers and your boss as much as they do their friends at lunch. Whose approval do we want the most? You see, I think something about understanding the way God made us is going to help us with this idea. God made us to need three things in our core being. And the devil knows it. And he uses these three things to tempt us the wrong direction. The first thing that we deeply need is affirmation. We need the idea of someone confirming our identity, someone confirming their support for us, someone confirming our value to them. We all need to walk into a room and have someone look at us, our, our, our mom and our dad say, that's my boy, that's my girl. We need our spouse to say, that's my husband, that's my wife, with a smile on their face. When I go places to other churches and preach, when my wife is able to be with me, I always introduce her. So even as I'm just starting the message, hey, everybody, by the way, my wife is here with me today. Would you give it up for my wife right here? And she just, a smile comes to her face. Because at that moment, it affirms that I am glad she's my wife. I'm glad she's with me. I'm glad she's here. Because she's not gonna say a single word and yet they still clap for her more than they do me. Because we all need affirmation. The second one that we need is affection. Every single one of us needs someone to express their love and maybe even their like for us. This is why kids and spouses need hugs and kisses. This is why I love you needs to be said and said often. If you're of that generation, which is typically about my grandparents' generation, it was a famous saying for the, the husband to say, well, I don't say I love you to her. I said it once at the wedding. I don't have to say it ever again. She knows it. It doesn't work. This is, this is what happens when ladies get together and have coffee and go shopping. You're, you're showing affection. This is what happens when dudes get together to help each other move a refrigerator. We know it. That's affection. Because we don't get together at Starbucks and go, I just love you. We don't do that. But when you text seven of your friends, hey guys, I've got to get the refrigerator out of the garage and up the stairs into my kitchen, and, and one guy shows up, now you know who likes you. Now you know who loves you. The third thing that we need deep in our core being is approval. We need to hear, you are great. What you did was great. I'm proud of you. We all need these in our lives. And before anybody in here starts to say, Jimmy, what have you been reading? I mean, really, that's a bunch of psycho babble. I don't need that stuff. The emotional stuff doesn't matter to me. Before you try to discount that, can I just show you one thing that the Father said to Jesus? 
Jesus had gone to be baptized by John the Baptist. And in Mark 1, it says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. You're my son. I identify with you. I want everybody down there to know it. I claim you. I'm glad you are my son. I love you. I want them to know that. Y'all better watch out. I like him. With whom I'm well pleased. You haven't done a thing yet. This was before he started his ministry. Interesting. Think about this. Jesus went away and prayed and talked to the Father all the time. They were in constant communication called prayer. And the Father talked to Jesus all the time. But only two of those are recorded. Do you know that? We only know two of the things that he said to Jesus. It was this. Twice. He said it before he started his ministry. And he said it at the transfiguration right before he was to be crucified. The only thing that the Father ever let us hear, what was being said to the Son was, his affirmation, his affection, and his approval for his Son. Now, the reason that matters to you and me today as we consider what Jesus said, don't fear them, but fear my Father who loves you and values you, the reason that matters to you and me is because we need those three things and therefore we will get them. The only question we have to answer is where will we get them from? We need them. We will get them. And it is okay to get some of these from people. A healthy relationship will give you some of these. You should absolutely get these three in your immediate family. A healthy father, child, brother, sister, husband, wife relationship, you're going to get affirmation, affection, and approval. You should, but you can't get it all from there. You should get some from the church. Christians who say, well, I'm going to heaven, I've got a Bible, leave me alone. That's not the life Jesus intended for you. You need to be surrounded by other godly people who know how to give the right kind of affirmation, affection, and approval. You see, a car has a gas tank. And if you use a car correctly in the way it is meant to be used, the gas tank will become empty. The car is not made defectively and the gas tank is not the problem. The car just needs fuel. Our tanks need affirmation, affection, and approval. So, where are we going to get it from? Most people in this world get it from the rest of the world. Most people don't know how to get it from God. And most people, well, they get it from other unhealthy people. So here's the reality. Since many of the opinions in the world around you and me have ideologies that are very different from this and yet they claim theirs is correct. 
Well, you may be attacked on social media. You may be silenced. You may not get promoted. You may even be fired. You may not be considered cool at lunchtime. You may not be invited to some parties. You may get picked on. You may get left out. You may be insulted. They may not affirm you. They may not show affection for you. And they very likely will not approve of you. But God will. So today, choose whom do you fear? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your goodness in our lives. I pray that we would be able to look at that when we're facing choices on whom to fear. God, we recognize there are easy days to claim you and hard days to claim you. There are easy situations and circumstances to say I'm a Christian and there are hard ones. So God, we ask you to give us courage and strength to stand up boldly for you to identify with your truth in the world that we live in today. God, we need your help. We want to do what Jesus said. We face the reality every moment. Will you give us courage? Thank you, God. If you're just in a place of prayer, I wanna close today with speaking to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. When Jesus said, fear not, look at the value you have. He knew that he was sent to the earth to die for you. He lived a perfect life so that when his body hung on the cross and his blood was shed, it could pay for your sins, providing forgiveness with you, making you right with God. And then when he was raised from the dead, that, that same power can give you eternal life. We call this the free gift of salvation, but it does require you and me to interact and to receive that free gift. And if you've never done that, I wanna help you do that right now, wherever you are wherever you are, would you simply pray something like this to yourself and to God? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so today, I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. Thank you that I'm forgiven. In my prayer here today, would you fill me with your spirit? and give me a life of great meaning in your key. Amen. Would all of you help me celebrate with them? Amen.